Pilot Boys in the building. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. We are your hosts, Viswant and Partha. On today's episode, we have an election day news and notes special, where we'll take a deep dive into the election and the overall state of our union. We also welcome back Coach Zach Smith to give you all the best college football and Ohio State analysis. We wanted to give a quick shout out to our Patreon supporters. Donate to the Pilot Boys podcast on Patreon if you want to support and help keep us on air. Let's go! Where the Pilot Boys at? It's time to hit some news and notes, Partha. Are you ready? I'm ready. I've got the new mic ready to go. Let's get it. <laughs> so we we actually delayed recording this show, hoping that by the time we recorded, we would have an election result. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like the nation is complying with us, so we can't really tell you, uh, discuss who the next president is, but we definitely can get into a thorough discussion about the election itself, which I think is actually more fascinating, as we've talked about it, than the actual result is going to be anyway. So, Yeah, that's how I feel, man. It's just last night I was I was watching the election. I was just like, man, this is like sports, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. exciting. It's exciting to see who wins what and what strategies they used. Yeah. I mean, this is a very, very compelling election. And I think as I was thinking about it and I was seeing the results, the thing that stood out to me first and foremost is that how much, not the virus itself, but how much coronavirus is playing a role in this election, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, without early voting, specifically i don't know if we don't have a guaranteed trump win this time around if you look at it and look at how the split is between the early voting and the mail-in ballots versus day of voting yeah i mean it's it's very clear that that's made a huge difference so people who are who are anxious to get trump out of office and have been depressed by this coronavirus you know, it's 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 very ironic that it may be the reason that he doesn't get four more years. Yeah, it's really interesting. And just the component of, you know, which states are counting them when has played an interesting caveat. First of all, kind of ridiculous to not count your mail-in votes before yeah. the actual election has happened. I don't know what the reason would be for that, but states like Pennsylvania have chosen to do that. And so that means there's a possibility we won't even know till Friday. Yeah, that's that's so unfortunate. And what's what's sad about this is kind of the black eye of the electorate always goes to Florida, right? Since the whole whole Al Gore debacle. (laughs) And it seems like they're the one state that got it got that of the larger states got it right. They've counted everything like. Right. So it just I agree with you. It makes no sense at all, especially in an election like this. You know, you can keep those results locked away, but there's absolutely no reason not to have those counted and ready to go um, yeah. before before election night. Because absolutely. the fact that we're going to have to wait until Friday to get a result is just is is ludicrous. Yeah, and I've got a little um, you know election simulator in front of me that I've been playing with. Um, 
just to kind of go through the case studies, but just to talk about the states that are still in question, you've got Nevada, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. And right now, Michigan and Wisconsin and Nevada are all leading blue, and Pennsylvania and North Carolina and Georgia are all leaning red. And man, I mean, let me let me just click through that, but I'm I'm not sure how who that favors. Oh, I, I guess Maine second district isn't decided. Do you know about these second district races? I don't. I know they they mentioned I read about it for the first time yesterday how Nebraska split and Maine split, right? Um, and they're actually saying that the one electoral vote from the split in Maine could very well determine this election. I don't, I don't, I don't fully understand it, but so as the map sits right now, I just went through the simulator. If everyone who has the current lead, this is Wednesday morning that we're recording this. So there's still votes being counted, Yeah, but the current situation is looking to play out in Biden's favor. If he wins Nevada, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Maine. That, uh, I guess Maine doesn't really matter here because I just flipped it to Trump and it, it didn't do anything for the outcome. But yeah. he has to win basically the Rust Belt and uh, uh, his. Um, he has to get Nevada. You know, that's an interesting one because that's one that's typically kind of been a, I guess, a pretty important swing state. Yeah, we're seeing uh, this is going to be a very. This is a very unique election in terms of how things are playing out. If you were to 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 tell me Trump is going to win Ohio, Florida, and Pennsylvania, and I had X amount of dollars in my bank account, I would have put it all on the line that he was going to win the election, right? Yeah. That's, that's how these elections play out. The fact for the very first time in history, we're potentially going to see a candidate lose despite winning those three big swing states is, is, is history in itself. And then, like you said, some of these West coast, traditionally red states like Nevada and Arizona flipping over to Biden, very unique, obviously. And it also, I don't know what that says, but I will say that it probably showcases that each state right now is facing unique challenges and the electorate within those states are are probably voting on those things. One thing we talked about before the show started was perhaps it has to do with how much the economy in Nevada is struggling right now with the lack of, of tourism from going to Vegas, going to Reno. Um, I don't know if that's it, but it's it's a big swing to take Nevada over yeah. to uh, over to blue. It's an interesting one because Vegas was one of those cities that during the pandemic just refused to shut down. If you remember, people were still going and you could still go. You could still go do a lot of stuff. Um, That's interesting to me that a state that would have those policies would lean blue, which would indicate that many people who live there that may not be, you know, voting in the local elections probably use their voice in this one. Yeah, I think overall, when you look at how elections work and how people vote on, it's it's a very personal decision, right? And I think if you look at Nevada right now, the, a large population of the electorate that works in these jobs, forget the, the from a policy standpoint, they're struggling right now, right? A lot of them have been laid off, struggling financially. There hasn't been a, re- a second relief bill. 
So perhaps that's what's driving a lot of people to say, you know what, we need change because right now what's happening isn't benefiting us in any way. You know, that's, that's a guess. I'm not, you know, I'm not (laughs) preaching. I I know, you know, it's very possible. I think one of the things that's a bit disappointing looking at the electoral map is how regionally polarized these uh, states are just to see the entirety of, um, you know, what, I mean, what we would consider like typically red states and all of these swing states that you mentioned to go completely red and then to see mostly coastal states um, along with a good chunk of the Midwest, um, but more of the uh, manufacturing portion of the Midwest uh, go blue is a really, really interesting indicator um, in the divisiveness in the country. And what's even more interesting is that a lot of these cities that have gone blue, like, uh, you know, Detroit, like Chicago, um, while they are urban centers that typically lean liberal, these are also the areas that really Trump had focused on when he was campaigning in terms yep. of bringing back manufacturing, auto manufacturing, all these different industries um, that have affected these states. And uh, yeah, that that's a surprise to me. It's incongruent with the rest of the data that I see. So I, I'm just not sure what to make out of the way that we split. But I think one of the things that I've been observing that has been interesting is just the the reactions of people to the election. And, yeah, uh, I think one thing that is interesting is uh, I've noticed a lot of my friends, liberal or conservative, um, kind of take one of two approaches. One, which I prefer, is the "Hey, we're all American." It's just a, it's an election, and yeah, yeah move forward. Um, the other, which is interesting, is. Uh, you know, if we win, hey, we're all American. Literally, some I saw this post on somebody's feed. If we win, we're all American. If we lose, we're going to keep fighting. And yeah. It's like, well, I don't think we need to fight each other. I just don't. I think we can yeah. debate. I think we can we can have conversation. But uh, I always I'm I'm more of a like a unity guy. I don't, I don't really believe in party politics. And I think maybe some of what we're seeing in this election is. Um, parties starting to represent identities within the country between the two new almost like caricatures of America, like the urban liberal and then the rural conservative. Yeah. I mean, one of my larger, larger points of contention with Trump is his instigation of this. I completely understand it from a strategy standpoint. Like he wants to make it very clear to a large population of the rural population of America who kind of vote on specific things of we're taking our, that, that thought of these people, whoever these people are, can be a wide group of people are taking our country over versus it being a, Hey, we're all American type of position. Yeah. It's like, he's, he's, playing the political game based on the electoral college, which from a strictly strategy standpoint, you completely understand. And and in some ways you respect because that's why he won the last election. And that's why, but then the larger issue is, is, is there a moral question or a moral dilemma that he should be facing more? I don't know. I don't know what, what, what your thoughts are on that. Or is it, this is a game that politicians have to play to win and whatever strategy you take to win, if it works, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I think part of it is, you know, the moral dilemma exists because we have the information to know that some of what he says is false. Yeah. Right. 
So when he positions things a certain way, we can we can actually just look on social media and see that on the ground things are not so extreme. Uh, yeah. Same thing, you know, flipped in terms of how we see the country. And um, I I was you know, in a lively debate with somebody the other day who um, had a a very anti-Trump view yeah. and said, if you vote for him, then um, you can't be my friend. And you know, I see the divisiveness on both sides from a party oh, politics standpoint. That yes, and I think again, you know, and I think you bring up a good yeah. point because the counter for every a- action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? And right now, we're in a very emotionally divided country where yeah. if you your vote signals more to people on one side or the other than just hey, this is the candidate that I support. It's much deeper. There are race issues. There are uh, socioeconomic issues. There are many things that I think have been boiling under the surface in America for a long time, but now are rising back to the top, right? Yeah. When, you ha- when you have times of struggle like this, the divisions are going are gonna to show themselves. But the truth is America's always been a very divided country. We all figure out a way to get along for the pursuit of capitalism. But as from a cultural standpoint, you looked at the map, you see it, you know, urban centers are mostly liberal democratic. Once you get outside of those centers, you're looking at a complete opposite mentality in rural populations. And yeah. so the, the, the question becomes, how do you, is, is it the country's responsibility to figure out how to bridge that gap or is it the country's responsibility just to create a system in which these very, very different groups of people with different mentalities can coexist? Yeah. And I think there's you, you've pointed out an interesting nuance that I think deserves kind of more of a breakdown. But it's the difference between what is the responsibility of the system versus what's the responsibility of the people who operate within that system. Yeah. And, you know, your vote should not be something people take personally. And I think that's a big thing that we see today. We see it in sports opinions all the time. If I say LeBron's the GOAT, I'm going to have 300 people message me and say MJ's the GOAT and get mad at me for saying that. And, you know, me feeling a certain way or expressing a belief or even casting a vote, which, by the way, is private, um, it doesn't have any bearing on who I am as a person. It has a bearing on what decision I want to make at that time, right? Yeah, And it's we can't take somebody's vote and attribute values to them without taking the time to get to know them because people are not binary. People are all sorts of types. And I I think the irony that I see is that it's the people that are the most persecuted. The friend that, um, that I was in the debate with yesterday is a, like someone I respect tremendously. He's a huge leader in the LGBTQ community. And, for somebody who who's so much about, hey, we're persecuted, we need to get more rights, you know, we need to be treated fairly, we need you to understand who we are. I just thought it was extremely hypocritical to say, but I'm not willing to understand who you are for someone who disagrees with me. And I think that's kind of the the main thing that's happening in this country right now. It's and I don't think it's a fault of the system. I think the system has existed, but society is changing as a result of all the means of communication yeah. we have. But I think this this 
level of emotional growth is required for the country to understand that when someone expresses opinion, it doesn't mean anything about you. That's you projecting your own insecurities or fears or pain onto what they said and attributing yep. characteristics to them. Yep. And, and, you know, another thing about it is, is it's like, you can't grow that way. You can't yeah. grow without learning perspectives outside of your own. Even if you don't agree with someone or you think they're batshit crazy. I've learned a lot from people that I think are batshit crazy because understanding how people think and understanding that there are probably, there are more, there are pockets of people who think just like that. So if you yeah. understand someone who thinks like that, it helps you. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, that's, that's one of the larger issues. And, and I think you're right. It's how society is changing because 10, 15 years ago, when you talked about hot button issues, you talked about it with the same five friends, right? That you yeah. interacted with the most new and were mo the most comfortable with sharing all of your opinions with. Now we live in a society where it's encouraged to broadcast your opinions on every subject consistently. Yeah. And so from a, and it's, I, I, I'm happy about it because it helps me understand people, but it also from a political standpoint, creates the tensions that already existed around politics are now even more hot button because there's so much, so much noise, right. That yeah. everyone needs to filter through. And no matter how good of a filter you have, it's hard to filter everything, you know, it's super hard. And it, you know, the process of growing, the process of accepting and listening to opinions that are not your own is it's a difficult one because it brings out every single part of you that you might have every fear you have, every insecurity you have, it's, it's going to surface. So it's not, you know, we can't expect perfection out of people and it's, it's just not going to happen. But, uh, I hope, I hope that we get to a place of just greater understanding and empathy amongst all of mm -hmm. our peers because yeah. And, and it would be, it would be great, you know, if, if we had some sort of fix or some sort of policy fix in our, in our, our system, right. In terms of making sure voters are educated on objectively on issues, where does Biden stand here? Where does Trump stand here? And not hear it from these political ads and the slanted viewpoints of each party, because what they're doing is manipulating people, right? Yeah. Like, and people are busy. They have, they're trying to survive, live their own lives. But if there was just a, a, a simple way of educating voters, every registered voter had to watch a 10, 15 minute video before they voted on the process, what issues matter, what they mean, I think that 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 could be a step that I think could be helpful, right? Yeah. I, don't, I mean, we can't just have people people voting on policies that potentially could change the fabric of our society from a completely ignorant standpoint. Just like this is what I feel, so I'm going to vote, you know. And that's that's just one of my pet peeves about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think you're totally spot on. I mean, along those lines, you know, you go to the coronavirus, which played a factor in how we all voted, like we mentioned earlier. And you see both parties who, yeah, I would say probably the Democrats were more adamant about shutdowns and, you know, living in LA, like we had been shut down for a long time. But for some reason, voting's not a problem when you vote for their party. Yeah. Like, hey, come out and vote. Okay. But can I not go out to dinner? You know? Yeah. Can I not like go to the library. Yeah. And you know, what else is surprising is that, the coronavirus itself 
with how much time is spent on talking about it, it's I've read that it's not even really an issue that's at the forefront of voters' minds. That's <laughs> not what <laughs> it's not even an issue statistically that has any real impact. You know, more people die every year from cigarette smoking than have died this year from coronavirus. Yeah. It, yeah. It's it's just interesting to see how much we blow up certain headlines to try and drive emotion, which yeah. we're hoping will drive action. But in fact, you know, our our news media, our the way we communicate information, all of it is is really a method to drive you to vote for a certain party. And ultimately, you know, something I'm not the biggest fan of. I'll just say that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it is, it is what it is, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, we have to, I think there's a lot of complaining that happens about our system, but I think we all kind of have to figure out a way to survive and thrive in it. That's the goal, right? Like to, to, to make sure we're successful in the system and society that we live in and to do so you need to really understand how the game is played and most of us i'd say 95 percent of us don't even understand all of our political how our political system works how our economy works you know and so it's it's they want to be told what to think yeah and that that creates unique challenges you know and yeah. i think in this election there are so many surprises. I think you brought up a, a, a fact before we jumped on that the black vote is actually split between Trump and Biden. We thought that Biden was going to win that vote and the minority vote in a landslide, and he isn't. You know, The Hispanic vote in Florida was a very interesting one. The Cuban vote played a significant role in Trump winning that state. Yeah, it did. It did. Projected to go blue, but... Um, you know, Cubans, um, I, for, I forgot what policy it was specifically, um, but Cubans tended to identify more with Trump's policies than Biden's. Well, I think Trump, re- again, goes back to what we said. He really successfully triggered that population with the the far left socialist agenda. That's what like, it was. That's what it was. A, yeah. it's, it's such a trigger for those Cubans specifically because of yeah. of the system of government that exists. Just saying that. And as many times as he said it, they probably were like, no socialism for us. Yeah. It's interesting too with immigrants that come in, right? Because they yeah. a lot of them share that perspective where it's the they come here and they're like, Hey, can you please get off our backs? You yeah. know? Yeah. And I this election's interesting because I do feel that it's a referendum on big government versus small government. Basically, can you get out of my life is what like I would, I would say the sentiment of the Republican vote is like, just let me live my life. Stop getting in the way. Um, and I think COVID plays a big factor in that. And I think on the democratic side, it's more the argument of, Hey, the government is not fulfilling its responsibility to take care of its people. And I think that that's the nuance here. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the, the, the larger issues I think is, the government's inefficiency in terms of how it uses the revenue it's generated. I think the U S generates more tax revenue than any, any nation in the world. I think don't quote me on that. I think I read that it's been a while, but yet we're in the type of debt as a nation that we're in. So when you're making investment decisions, if I'm picking a stock, 
and I look at a, at a, a company's debt load and their debt is significantly larger than the revenue. <laughs> I'm going to be like, is this a good company to invest in? And right now I feel like the United States government is not a good company to invest in because yeah. they don't know how to operate efficiently. We should have a much better healthcare system. We should have better infrastructure. It's been neglected for decades. And it seems like our politicians, the one, the moment one gets elected, the only thing they really, really care about is what's going to happen in the next election. Yeah. And they're building their entire, entire agenda on how do we get this person out of office versus, hey, okay, this is the president. How are we going to work together and move the country forward? That, that's been lost in probably the last 20 or so years, you know, yeah. that, and I don't know when that bill is going to come due for us or if it's going to come due, if we're just going to keep being able to add debt because everybody needs our country's consumption and it doesn't really matter all that much, but it is a, it is a question because it's like, what are you guys doing with our money? I don't mind paying higher taxes. If I see better infrastructure around me, better airports, better everything around me, I don't think people will be as upset at the government for taking our money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And you, you know what? I mean, I think I think that's the clip, you know. I think that's that's exactly what people have concerns about and you know, it it can be easy to say I don't like this candidate, I'm going to vote for this one. Either way, I've heard it both ways in this election. But if you're just voting because you dislike a candidate, you don't know what you're voting for. You yeah. might be voting for something worse than you meant to vote for. And yeah. so it's it's imperative that you understand those kinds of details. And it's the reality of it is that those things are very, very difficult to know as a regular person. And they're intentionally difficult because, I mean, Congress doesn't want everybody to know how things work. You know, you don't want the sausage to be made. I heard yeah. this quote in the West Wing. There's two things you don't want to know, how laws get made and how sausages get made. that that is the truth that is the truth you know and i think you know and also it's like this is now what where are our priorities right like trump came out yesterday at 2 (laughs) a.m and said we've won this election and the votes need to stop being counted like our politics is becoming reality TV. And then Biden on the other side of this, you know, my biggest pet peeve with Biden is I don't know where he really stands. He's basically running a campaign on I'm not Trump, but (laughs) I don't fully know what, where he stands. It's like, it seems like he's just running a campaign to appease everyone that's disgruntled. And this has happened in the past is like a candidate runs on that, then gets into office and doesn't address any of the things or solves that he claims he was going to solve. And that's why we need to have clarity on where people stand. What are the issues? You know, I think this, you know, we're all about efficiency here. You have the ability to create a system in in which you can poll every American registered voter on what the issues are that matter to them, then break that down into percentages and then have debates and conversations built specifically around that and that only. 
versus just random manipulation and babble. And, and that's, that's, you know, I don't, I, I could, I can stand on my soapbox. I like, I complain more about how it's structured and how inefficient it is because at the end of the day, I know I'm going to have to survive if it's a Republican in office. I know I'm going to have to survive if a Democrat and thrive if a Democrat's in office. So, you know, we just have to try to try to increase and improve our our government before it before it crumbles. Do you do you have long term concerns about whether or not this is sustainable? The way that we're operating now is sustainable. No, I know, I know it's not. I yeah. I just understand that we're going to come to a point where some country is going to have to be forgiven of its debt and it likely won't be us because we have the most military so we can borrow probably a lot longer than most but uh, my anticipation is that it's in the smaller countries that have less solid military and financial systems and you know credit really due to the strength of you know, their country and its ability to last for a long time. Um, my concern falls more into what what's going to happen elsewhere in the world, because, you know, I, I think the U.S. is a lot like Tesla. Like we yeah. can lose money forever and people are going to still increase the value of it. Yeah, um, that's that's just kind of the situation we're in. When I say forever, I, I'm just looking at kind of a hundred year window. Yeah. But I do feel that. The, de- the destabilization that's happening elsewhere in the world will cause financial issues that will, you know, come come affect us. So I think if I were running the country, I would prioritize getting to a budget surplus quickly and the efficiency with which tax dollars are utilized as opposed to focusing on policy specifically. I'd probably just focus on making the machine better. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that... I understand why that's not the intent of most people who come come into office. They have you know, to actually run for president is a very very exhaustive endeavor. So you have yeah. to have a pretty darn good reason that you want to be president. Yeah, you do. You do and it's you know honestly that that fear and concern of of war is actually what what was a huge deciding factor on my vote, you know. Um and that's that's something we have to look at it's like we live america lives in this bubble where we we just really are only have to be concerned about what's happening here and the truth is that we're a system that is very 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 global you know we're dependent on everyone so it is important like you said even having that understanding of how smaller economies versus larger economies work how that impacts our economy. Like those are things that, you know, you have to actually seek the knowledge to understand. And, and those are the things that will help you become an informed voter and being an informed voter is the best thing that you can do. Like you mentioned and stood on your soapbox on our last episode, (laughs) (laughs) be informed. You know, there's no excuse. There's no excuse. On top of that, when you're informed, you can also make a lot more money. That's yeah. that's kind of the trick to the world is when you understand how the systems work, it becomes a lot easier to understand how to how to build a company or how how to generate revenue for yourself. Yeah. So that's that's another caveat. When you stick to what you're told in terms of, you know, 
get it, do this, and then you'll get a job or do this or do that. It's only through the lens of the person who's giving you that information. But if you take the time to really build a deep understanding of how our government and how the world governments work, which, by the way, everybody's taught this growing up. So it's really uh, a function of, and if you didn't pay attention, don't worry, I didn't pay attention to history in high school. I thought it was really boring. But now that I'm alive as an adult and I actually am seeing the impact of all of these decisions happen in real life, it's all of a sudden extremely exciting because it got humanized. And so, you know, if you can find that way to get engaged into how things work, whether it's in politics, policymaking, or even how that interacts with business communities and how businesses in general work um, and how they interact with our country and other countries, uh, that can be a really, really profitable endeavor, and it'll make you an informed voter. Now I'm all yep. about doing two things at once. Yeah, and when you when you live in, you know, people people want to sometimes say, well, it's not all about the money. But when you live in a a capitalist system, um, by definition, it is all about the money. Who has it versus who doesn't? Now, if you don't care about having power, then yes, it doesn't matter. But if you care about improving your situation and figuring out a way to improve your family's situation in a country like America. Yeah. You do need to figure out how to make a few more bucks. You don't. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's just the cold, hard truth. Yeah. And honestly, I think money and like its effect on capitalism is really fascinating because it has the ability to also act as a voice in some sort, you know, yes. whether it's through, advertising, whether it's through being able to organize people to execute something, um, that it's a tool more than anything Mm -hmm. in this society to be able to create change and to move things forward. And so one of the things we, we also struggle with is that culturally due to, again, the human element that has played into the systems that we have, uh, people have taken advantage of other people to mm-hmm. create money for themselves due to an education or an information gap in terms of how the systems people understood. And that's kind of been a pervading theme throughout history. But I do think we're at the point with internet and with the access we have, we all have to information, even on TikTok. I mean, I get educated on things just swiping through that feed. Yeah, And, you know, that rapid, I would say like adult education that's happening through non-regulated means is the future of how people treat and interact with a capitalist society and a a government that's structured in that society. So I think that the next 30 years or so with Gen Z shifting into voting and starting to have a voice. And by the way, Gen Z is the same generation, you know, Gen Z and, and part of millennial, same generation that's brought flat earth to us, same generation that's brought the moon landing conspiracy or like brought it to prevalence. You know, this this is a generation that likes to question things because they've seen how easy it is to spin and manipulate information. Yeah. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens in the next 30 years, because as this generation starts to really understand the rules of our society, and I think they have a greater propensity to just because of the society they were born into, um, I think we'll see some massive disruption in terms of how political campaigns and news and media are run and how they can sustain because that generation, they don't watch the news. They don't no, care. No. Yeah. They really don't. They really don't. I mean, they 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 live in a different different world and you see it too, right? Like even in this 
voting process, it's like they don't they don't participate. Yeah. Younger voters do not participate. And it was fascinating to me specifically with Bernie Sanders because they were saying, oh, well, the young voters love him, but they didn't turn out and vote for him, you know? And that's, that's like, where do we head when these people actually, I mean, these older voters actually do leave our society. What yeah. is going to happen to our system? And then you bring up a great point. And one last bit on the, the, the economic and capitalist part of this is understanding how things actually get done with these politicians, that their positions in a lot time, most part are driven by who the lobbyist that's supporting them the most is right. Yeah. Like, and understanding that process, like one you brought up earlier, the, the LGBTQ population of voter base, they fought a fight to get to the point, to get the rights that they have. Yep. But a big part of the reason that they were able to is they understood, they figured out the political system yep. and the political side of this thing and operated within that to advance their cause, right? Yep. Um, and that's, 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 that's one last point on that, that I think if you do have big goals or you want to impact change, just really understand that the political system is in the political sphere is the way that you're going to be able to make those big changes. You have to figure out how to influence the people to do what you want them to do. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so just wrap up on the election. We have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, it's looking like it's leaning Biden, but it's still very, very close. So we'll have to see how these uh, mail-in ballots mm -hmm. pan out. Um, also wanted to quickly mention um, Quibi shut down. And there's been a lot of press on them. Mm -hmm. uh, they gave back, uh, it was about $350 million uh, that they had in cash that they're going to give back to the investors. Um, you know, they're winding down everything. A lot of employees getting let go. And in general, the sentiment that I've read is that most employees absolutely loved working there. They really looked up to um, the leadership. I read a little bit about, you know, the light growing pains of when uh, Meg and Jeff started working together for the first time, some email threads that had come out. But in general, it seemed like a pretty well-run operation from what I've read about it. It just seemed like a hypothesis that is reasonable from the standpoint of venture capital, from the standpoint of major production firms, and from the standpoint of those two founders. And uh, a thesis that and business plan that, you know, again, are reasonable, but just didn't work out. Yeah. I think that some of the things that they assumed, um, were incorrect, right? Not understanding and looking at from a competitive standpoint and marketing com competition standpoint, they didn't feel like TV, Netflix, Hulu were their competition. They also didn't feel like Instagram, TikTok. And the social spheres were their competition because, you know, Quibi was like, we're going to capture that content that people can capture on their phones in between times. Yep. But they didn't properly appreciate that. Even though that was their platform, they still have to compete with all these. Uh, YouTube exists, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and understanding that you have to carve a niche. And I think it, they were hurt by their leadership a little, even though obviously Meg Whitman and Jeffrey Katzenberg are, legends right um as leaders 
that lack of connectivity to where the market is today and how content is being driven today. Like I saw that they paid a whole bunch of like older talent, right. To, to, to come on their platform Mm -hmm. versus going organic and also catering to some of these personalities that are, they're famous on YouTube that are famous on, on TikTok and creating content around them that is going to engage the audience of people you're a consumer you're trying to reach. Right. That was a, that was definitely a major flaw. And then the final thing is I can't think of a show that you have to go to Quibi to watch, right? Like (laughs) Netflix became famous because they had a series of shows that became really popular and people were telling other people they have to watch and people signed up. Like I know there are subscriptions that I have specifically, I'll, I'll subscribe specifically when I know a certain season of a show is coming on, you know? Yeah. So those there, it, it just goes to show that just because you have a bunch of money and you have all the tools to succeed, if your game plan doesn't take into account your competition properly and evaluate your position in the marketplace and, and attack that aggressively, the writing was on the wall that this was probably not going to work out. Yeah, I think so too. And I think there's a couple things that that missed. Um, I remember going through it and content wise, I just didn't find the content very We're engaging. Yep. Um, LeBron did a show on there and it was just a documentary about his school that he funded, which I mean, good for him, but I, I don't want to watch that. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm just not interested. And, you know, I, I look at like how Apple TV's done it with their original base of content. And the quality is just significantly higher in terms of how engaging it is, the quality of the shows, the thoughtfulness, the creativity, they're funny, they're engaging, even the, the greatness code series on Apple TV. Yeah. Excellent. And I, and every episode, by the way, nine minutes, it should have been on Quibi. Yeah. Right. But it's like those pieces, I think the thesis was right. I think their market also could have been uh, incorrect because I think that Gen Z has a lot of what they need through TikTok, Snapchat, and all those other platforms. But I think that Gen X and millennials are more in need of what Quibi services would have provided, but probably more from a news standpoint where you get a 10-minute video update of what's going on in the world. Yeah, it was just too big, too fast, and and didn't properly evaluate the market conditions or, or the consumer conditions that they were getting into. But I do think, you know, you brought up a very good point earlier on is that you know, for every, if you don't take the risk of a Quibi, because we can go through history and find many, many other things that have failed like Quibi has failed. Right. And, and I think a lot of the the media around it was like laughing or, or saying, look at this big failure. It's such a disappointment. And that, that creates a trigger. I think there's a lot more to be gained from evaluating both, both the strengths and weaknesses of, of the platform yeah. um, and, and, and seeing how you can get better. One question I had for you on it was, do you think we're getting to a point where there's just too many different streaming platforms? Because I can't even keep track anymore. There are shows I watch on Amazon prime. There are shows I watch on Netflix. There are shows I watch on Apple TV. It, it now HBO go like the individual networks are creating their own things. Do you think that we're getting to a point that there's this big new thing that helped Netflix explode as a company that now 
we're just we're just too concentrated and too diluted or do you think there's really a space for as many platforms as as people want to come up with so when they initially built the railroads or even the roads there mm-hmm. are only a few major brands of cars yep now there's tons mm-hmm. tons new ones coming out every year why is that the infrastructure is what takes time to build with the internet with media even with media sharing there's an ip advantage in being able to stream content now that IP advantage is gone, it's not hard to build these systems. It's not hard to code them. And there's plenty of people who have that talent. So there's no more infrastructure building that needs to happen, which opens up a market to a tremendous amount of competition. And typically what happens is the market saturates is you start to find these tribes that people form into. So like Prime has certain types of original content. You know, Netflix has a certain style of original yeah. content. Apple TV, a certain style of original content. Same with Disney. Each one has excellent shows and each one has terrible shows. And it's really the same thing we saw with TV channels. This is just how markets saturate is that they turn into areas with a lot of competition and each one holds their own unique, um, unique uh, customer base and community. So I don't think anything that we're seeing is not normal from the standpoint of market saturation, but I, I think that in general, the understanding of the general consumer as to how markets progress and really like uh, I like to tie everything back to some sort of reason to know the information because, you know, nobody really cares how markets change, but this is, if you're buying stocks, this is a really, really good piece of information to know that whenever a new technology enters the market, infrastructure is the first thing that needs to get built. So it's great to invest in infrastructure companies. Once the infrastructure is built, they're not going to grow as fast anymore, but they'll have tremendous amounts of value. That's great. And when you have that value, you can then start to invest in the players. It's the same thing we're seeing in esports, where people are investing in companies that do the finance side of esports, that do the infrastructure Mm -hmm. side. And same thing in cannabis. People are investing in companies that help companies stay regulated and make sure that they're compliant uh, as opposed to investing in specific brands. And that's, that's really the best way to think about how industries progress. So Quibi was, you know, to your point V, whenever you throw a lot of money at something and you don't build it organically, it's very, very hard to sustain. So that's, that's one part of it is that pace can be very, very uh, negative when it comes to building and growing a company at the same time, looking at the way that Meg and Jeff went into this, raising a couple billion dollars and throwing it into this aggressive of a content strategy, they were looking for either a grand slam or nothing. And that's, that's all this money was raised pre COVID by the way. So once COVID hit the market actually leaned their way, which would have indicated that this was a brilliant idea. But sometimes these ideas don't work. And you, as, a, as a regular person, I think what's challenging is seeing that much money, especially when you know the majority of this country is struggling paycheck to paycheck, to see that much money just get blown yeah, in two seconds. That, that's, that's, it just goes it, to show you. Yeah, that's hard. But you know, I think at the same time, it was a good swing. That's just what happens. And buyer beware, right? Like everybody who put the money in knew the risks that they were getting into, but it was worth it for a proportionately or a disproportionately large return that they were hoping on. 
and they're going to make 10 of those bets, 100 of those bets over the next couple of years. And, you know, some will hit. One, one other question before we before we kind of move on here is where, where do you see the future of the traditional broadcast media, cable networks that have been long standing now with all these new platforms coming on? You pretty much, you know, can can consume what you want versus buying a whole bunch of channels and content that you really don't need. Do you think that doomsday is coming soon for for cable network operators? And large networks? I think it's just shifting. So if I'm if I'm cable network or news really channel operators, I'm buying all of the major Instagram pages that share my news or share, mm-hmm. you know, if, I, if I'm ESPN, I'm buying the companies like Wave TV, which a friend of mine, Brian, runs, which is basically a bunch of Instagram pages that share relevant content for different sports. And they're very good at sharing news. They're very up to date, very similar to what Bleacher Report and Overtime are doing on social media it's incredibly important to own those platforms because that's how the new generation perceives information. But that's just a part of running a news organization and understanding how technology changes. Your initial goal is the same, right? Getting information out to as many people as possible. But as demographics age, as the way news and information is transmitted changes, it's your responsibility to stay on top of that. And so I think we'll see who's smart. We'll see who's agile. We'll see who's smart. We'll see who's built innovative infrastructures and cultures and who has great leadership. And we'll see who doesn't as well. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. One one last quick note. We wanted to to give a RIP to Sean Connery. Um, One of the greatest. One of the greatest and definition, I think, for a lot of men of what we aim to be as men. Right. So. And and just also how he fought for people, like reading the stories about him. He just seems like a a genuine person in a in a very very disingenuous world. <laughs> so. Yeah, seriously. Well, awesome, man. This was great. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, this is the Pilot Boys, and this is the wrap of our news and notes today. There is no interview segment because this is our election edition. Uh, so without further ado. It's time to talk college football again, and we welcome back our resident insider, Zach Smith, to talk about the weekend's happening and the the week ahead and the rest of the season ahead. Are you ready to go, Zach? I'm always ready, man. Let's get it. Let's go. You know, the first thing we got to talk about is uh, the, the pretty much an ass-whooping we put on Penn State. It was a little, a little touch and go there at the end, but it's it didn't ever seem like Ohio State was out of control that game. Just your... Uh, your review of the game and what you saw overall. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a great game. I mean, I thought it was a great second game. You know, we, we forget we're playing Penn State. Usually that's like game five, game six. So it's game two. And uh, I thought it was really good. I thought that I thought uh, Justin Fields, again, was just absolutely flawless. He was phenomenal. And uh, Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, phenomenal. The offensive line in the first half was just moving Penn State like I mean, just you were watching Master Teague hit a hole and the hole was three yards downfield. It wasn't like he's hitting the hole and getting three yards downfield. He's like getting into the line of scrimmage two yards downfield. It was just the line was unbelievable in the run game in the first half. And then Penn State had some adjustments and uh, the line kind of struggled with him in the second half. But it was that's going to happen early in the season, you know. 
And then the defense, I thought the defensive line was just stupid. I mean, Jonathan Cooper was his best game as a Buckeye by far. And uh, the interior D lineman, Tommy Togiai and, and Haskell Garrett are probably the two best combo interior D linemen in the country. So it was it was, it was was an excellent game. And people were going to point to things like Sean Wade didn't play well and, and the linebackers played okay and the tight ends really played poor. But it's game two. You're going to have a couple guys that have a bad game, that maybe a group that <clears throat> didn't have a great game. And so it, they'll get it corrected. I, it's what you expect early in the season. And I think also, like, I think people need to understand that Penn State has a very good, very talented receiving core, um, including a freshman that played really well in that game. But the thing about the secondary that kind of concerned me, and this is a question that I've had for a while, Kerry Coombs likes to play man. But over the last few years, we've seen more and more of this development of the trail technique. And what, what what do you think is behind that? Do you think it was because it was game two and it was like, okay, let's bend but not break against this receiving core? Yeah. Because personally, I hate when I see that that happening. Yeah, you know what? Uh, it's it's not their philosophy anymore. It used to be in, in the quarters press quarters coverage. It was always trail technique, make them throw the lower percentage throw. But they play they don't play that way anymore. I mean, sometimes third down they'll play some coverages where they do get in trail yeah. intentionally, but they're playing a lot of off coverage in first and second down, and then they do play press and third down and occasionally early early downs. But it, it's definitely not intentional. And I know Sean Wade. You know, he, he was in good coverage a couple uh, two times and Jahan Dotson made ridiculous plays. But then he he played press man on Jahan Dotson and the kid, I mean, just broke him off on two slants, one for a touchdown. And that's just very uncharacteristic. And I would attribute it that to so many different techniques, whereas in earlier when Kerry was here the first time, there was minimal techniques. It was really yeah. pressed all the time. And that's yeah, all you did. Yeah. And it's and press press man's a hard thing to do, right? So if if you don't work it enough, you could get exposed a little bit. And I, Sean is certainly talented enough. He's good enough to play press against anyone. I would just attribute it to maybe he needs to spend a little more time on press because so that he can be a lockdown press corner, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I noticed, Zach, was uh, on the offensive side of the ball, there was just such tremendous confidence in the team. And I, that fourth down, I think it was fourth and two, where they threw that like 15, 17-yard pass really close to the end zone, was one of those plays that stood out to me. Because when an offense is clicking on, on those kinds of cylinders, when they're taking a fourth and short and throwing it far, I mean, it, it's incredibly hard to anticipate already. That just took it into a level where I, I don't think I've ever witnessed that before in college. You know what? It's funny. In my career, I kind of reflect on it, and I just did it real quickly when you were talking because you, you kind of struck a chord. It's like offenses and defenses take the identity of the guy that's leading them. And I saw it, the good and the bad, right? Tom Herman was a very confident, cocky kind of shit talker, and so our offense had a chip on their shoulder. Then he left, and Ed Warner was dysfunctional and all over the place, and the offense was like, it looked like a clown show. And then Ryan Day comes in, and you're watching some of the best stuff. I mean, I, I think I watched 15 games the last two days, and nobody is is on the, the same level as Ryan Day, what he's doing. And like you mentioned it, fourth yeah. Fourth down, they throw a play action pass for 20 yards. And then what some of the stuff he did in the red zone, like Justin Fields goes up, fakes a cadence, looks over to the sideline on third and three. And the minute the D line looks over, he just snaps the ball and he gets four yards on a quarterback sneak. Like they're doing so many things that are just like catching people off guard. And, yeah. and, he's so, Ryan is so confident in his offense. This offense and Justin Fields are playing confident because that energy just exudes to them, you know? It's yeah, really cool to watch. 
the bootleg passes they've been running have been just astonishing for me because the blocking yeah. patterns for those are crazy. They're they're patterns that you just rarely see, and the execution on them. I mean, I don't I don't think I've seen a quarterback until Fields who has been so consistent throwing on the run. And, and you know what? The, my favorite thing about some of the things you're talking about the boots and the nakeds are it's not a, a traditional old school boot where he throw it to a tight end, he gets seven yards. I mean, they're doing it with Garrett Wilson being the crunch yeah. crunch receiver yeah. going to the flat. They're they're getting so creative to to get the ball into the hands of Garrett Wilson and uh, and Chris Olave, and that's what I love. And that's that's kind of Ryan's mo. It's he's going to get ball, the ball to the the best players. And so I can't remember the stat I had it. It was uh, I think Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave have been targeted around forty times in two games, and the rest of the offense in the past game have been targeted like eighteen. And it's wow. like, it's very clear who he's trying to get the ball to. And I, and I think that this is this is something fairly new for Ohio State, right? Like with Urban, we got oh, the yeah. ball in our playmakers' hands, but it was like five yards up the field most of the time and <laughs> let them make a let them make a play. And I think part that you hit on the confidence, right? It's the confidence and and also it seems like Ryan Day's like, I'm gonna keep going to my playmakers until you show me you can stop them. There's never that period of time, like, you know, when Ohio State's significantly better, they'll take the foot off the gas and just run the ball and run for the last three quarters of the game. Right. That's not happening anymore. It's like, let's keep seeing how our offense can get better. It seems like that's that's the philosophy now. Yeah, and you know what else? I, I think it's Ryan's getting the ball to his best players, and 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 I don't think right now the run game is featuring anybody that's just over overly dynamic. And so you have a guy like Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, and even Jeremy Ruckert had a great touchdown. You have guys like that. It's like, am I going to hand it to Master Teague twenty eight times? Probably not. Like I'll hand it to him fifteen times and throw it to them the the other ten, right? Yeah. Because they're just more dynamic. Yep. Yeah. Dude, it's just it's watching this offense move in football does the same thing for me that the Golden State Warriors did about four yeah, years ago. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's so smooth. It's like the the there was a QB sneak that I saw one play where um, just the motion before it going into it was so deceiving. It's uh, it's like a level of football where the time before the play clock is as much a part of the play as the play itself. And every player commits 100% intensity to that. And that's how you create these really interesting, you know, plays, handoffs, fakes, all of that. And it's just, for me as a, as a fan watching it, it's a beautiful game. It's something we've not had at Ohio State in my lifetime because I grew up in, you know, the Trestle era and prior to that. So I remember watching like just this really, really rough offense being carried by our defense. It's just super rewarding uh, to see us on the other side of the ball now. Yeah, I mean every every play. There's never anything comfortable. Ryan's big thing is he never he wants to do something every play to make a defense uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And you know you you just simply trade a tight end and then motion a guy. That defense went from one rule to another rule to another rule, and it's like now they're just uncomfortable. They're a little frazzled, and he he does it so well, man. And I, I don't want to just sit here and sing his praises all day long, but <laughs> he really is. He's the best I see in college football right now. He looks like. A, 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 one of the top five NFL offenses, just stuff that you see the Seahawks yeah. do, stuff that you see the, yeah. the Chiefs do. That's what Ryan's doing. And nobody yeah. else in college, not many people in college are doing it. And you had a, I was going to say, you had a tweet during the game, Zach, um, I believe that was talking about how this game is just an example of how if you go to Ohio State, you play any role on the team, you're going to have a significant role to play. 
do you think that this makes an impact just being able to watch this from a recruiting standpoint for people who might be, you know, some of those role players that might not be the standout stars, but really make a big impact like a, like a Rucker right now? Well, I'm going to tell you this much. Um, the, what is going on right now on offense is going to help them in recruiting so much. Not that they need it, but the receiver position has never gotten the ball like they're getting yeah. this year. Mm-hmm. And, and it, part of it is because they're down at running back. But the other part of it is, you know, Tony Alford can go recruit Travion Henderson, the best back in the country, to come in because he, he we just had J.K. And he can see what the offense would look like with him. You never really had that. We had Mike Thomas at receiver. You had Devin Smith at receiver. You had Paris Campbell, Terry McLaurin. They're all like, you know – they never had like Bolitnikoff type of numbers. Like we, we always said, it's never going to happen here. Well, you're yeah. watching right now, Garrett Wilson, had he had 11, 12 games, he put up numbers that would blow away most Bolitnikoff winners. And that's just never been the case. And so you have quarterback numbers, receiver numbers, they're playing with two tight ends. Like who doesn't want to come to Ohio State? Because in, in Urban's offense, no tight end wanted to come to Ohio State because we threw it to him like maybe once never. a game. But they knew yeah. they go. They knew they'd go to the NFL. But they, yeah, they didn't right. come here to to do much in Ohio State. <laughs> no doubt. But I mean, you you look at some of the tight ends that that have went on to great careers, like Mike Gasecki's one of them. He yeah. was a guy that we were heavy on, and he just he really didn't want any part because he watched Jeff Hireman catch one or two balls a game, Nick Vanette one or two, and he's like, yeah, I kind of want to go catch ten. Yeah, yeah, makes so, total sense. With 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 everything that's said, I think. Ohio State fans should be very happy and very little to complain about. But moving forward as we get further into the season, what are the key areas you touched on? You you worried about the offensive line a little bit last week. It seems like they played better this week. What are some areas that we need to continue to improve on? Well, so on the offensive side of the ball, the tight ends didn't play well. They didn't block well in the, on the perimeter specifically. I think I think when I look at this offense, I, I saw two glaring things that I I said to myself, man, they, they need to get that incorporated, right? One is perimeter run game, and it's not going to be a master Teague perimeter run game. Whether it is Garrett Wilson, we saw a nice reverse first play of the game for 60-some yards, right? Or we got to unleash Trey Sermon at some point, right? Get him in, yeah. get him in space. He's, he's good in between the tackles, but I think his dynamic skill set is on the perimeter. So I think you get that going. And then, then the other thing that, that the offensive line played much better in the run game. The two tackles we have are the best two in the country. They still have not allowed a quarterback pressure, let alone a sack. But the interior three offensive linemen are, are, are struggling a little bit, the cohesive three. We know Wyatt Davis is a, probably a first-rounder, All-American last year. He's a great player. But just when you're a guard, you can't just be a great player. You need the center, the guard, and the other guard to all work together. That tackle can kick out and block a DN no matter who's next to him. You know what I mean? Those yeah. interior three have been a little bit of a liability in pass pro. So they just it's just reps. They just got to work together to to get that chemistry. So on offense, th- th- those are the, I guess, three things I want to see. is the tight ends and the uh, block better on the perimeter and get some perimeter run game going and then get those interior three to get the chemistry to block as well as we know they can in the pass game because they're they're road grading people in the run game. That, that ain't a concern. It's just the pass game. They've, they've let up some twists and pressures, some, some things that are tough to pick up. First couple times you go get game speed against an opponent, you know? Yeah. Should we talk about this um, very enjoyable game that happened just before? The Ohio State game? <laughs> Absolutely. Our friends uh, our friends at Michigan State had a nice little W. Uh, man, I, what'd you think, man? Last week, Zach uh, was saying Michigan's, Michigan's for real. <laughs> I mean, they were. In the first game, they were. I mean, they I get were, it. Yeah. Minnesota is turning out to be terrible. But, but I watched that Minnesota game, and I saw things that were – 
opponent the opponent didn't matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, stuff like timing, stuff like execution, tackling, things like that. It's like it doesn't really matter who you're playing. Everything was was well coached and well put together. And then you watch the debacle that we watched on on this past Saturday, and it's like, oh my gosh. And then you go on the post game interview, and Joe Milton doesn't even know the name of the best player on Michigan State that just had 11 tackles and dominated the whole game. He doesn't even know who he is. They asked him about him, and he was like, "Who's that?" And you're like, "Excuse me, you're the quarterback. What do you mean, who's that? That's their best player." And it just, I said it on my show that I put out today. I mean, the red flags are so big and so high up in the air right now that like Southwest Airlines is seeing them as they fly because this, it's not just a bad performance. It's not bad players. Things are coming out like that. And then this, I don't know that it's true, but it's it's a pretty strong rumor that their safeties coach hasn't been with the program for six weeks and they're playing, they're coaching without a safeties coach. Oh, wow. Like all this stuff's, all this stuff's going on and you're like, this is, this, these are elements of complete malalignment and just a program that is crumbling at the foundation. And so I, I said it on my show. I think it's I think it's time, maybe in three weeks, to fire Jim Harbaugh and move on. Do you think? I mean, this is this has been an ongoing story there for a while now. Jim Harbaugh was kind of like the guy that was supposed to save it. Is this their ceiling? Right? Is a pretty pretty good team, or do you think Michigan has the ability? To ever be elite again, they, they definitely do. I mean, they definitely do. You get the right coach in there. I promise. If we went there in 2012, we'd done the same thing we did in Columbus. Not, and that's not to discredit Buckeye Nation or Ohio State because mm-hmm. I think there is a significant uh, different level that Ohio State is on. But you get the right coach in there that recruits the white way, right way, with some young coaches, relentless, and they really build that brand back up. I think Michigan could be as high as anyone. And the other thing I said on my show is the big 10 needs a new coach in Michigan because Alabama was the, the, the king in the SEC for the last whatever six years, and then Georgia kind of rose to the occasion and became that that prince. You know what I mean? There yeah. is no prince. Maybe Penn State, but not really. Like there needs to be that in the Big Ten because right now it's really a one team show. Yeah, yeah. I remember that whole decade of like the one and two matchups between right. Ohio State and Michigan. Like, and it's it's not like fo- it's not like football everywhere else sucked back then. It's just like Michigan. They did a better job at Michigan. They 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 develop players better. They found players. I mean, it's just it, you can do it. You can do it there. Yeah, and w- and would you say that that Michigan State is the class of Michigan right now in terms of even despite the debacle that they just went through, are they the better program right now? No, absolutely not. And, and um, they're. They snuck a win. I mean, they lost to Rutgers. They're, they they look horrendous for the most part. I mean, um, <laughs> <laughs> all over the field, they just they, yeah. they snuck a win from Michigan. And to be honest, I, I got to wait for, for tomorrow or Wednesday night. What is it? The, the show comes out on Wednesday, right? Um, I got to wait Thursday. for uh, Thursday. Thursday. So so last night, <laughs> the action, I got to see. I got to see Central Michigan or Western Michigan. I'm not ready to say that one of them isn't the the cl- the team of the state, you know, because yeah. these two teams are, are disheveled. They're uh, it's they're a mess. And Michigan State, we knew was a mess. They got a yeah. new coach, so he's just he's trying to to come up. But Michigan, I don't know if they're on the downslide or if they're just at rock bottom bottom chilling. Is the tone in the state? Um, this just out of curiosity, but. Um, are, are the COVID restrictions in Michigan stricter than in Ohio right now? 
Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I think the protocols are pretty similar for the football players, but I think from from my knowledge, the the state has stricter re- guidelines than Ohio. But the football programs can it wouldn't make a difference. Yeah, wouldn't make a difference. I, I don't quote me on this, but I think they might be like all online, where Ohio State's not. There's you know, there's there's a couple of things, but the football players are doing the same thing as Ohio State. You know, they're not getting any any mal you know bad effect from COVID that Ohio State's not dealing with. Right. I mean, a big, a big part of this is recruiting, right? So, and I know you're, you're very tapped in. What is the brand or the profile of Michigan right now in recruiting? I, I don't know what it's ever been. I honestly don't. It's like it was, they've gone through phases, right? One was we go to, you know, Europe, we go to South Africa, we go to, I don't know, Nova Scotia, wherever the hell they go. It's like, cool, man. <laughs> That's awesome. How would I go to the NFL, save up money, and I could take my wife? <laughs> but that was their that was their brand for a minute, and then like they were the first Jordan school, and it was like the coaches were wearing Jordans on the road, and you're like, man, that's really cool. I can buy them too. Like it, it, they they they're they're scrambling for a, for an identity when their identity should be we grind, we develop kids, and we put them in the NFL. That's your that's what your identity should be because that's what every kid wants. Uh, Cute Jordans are sweet and everything. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Rome looks beautiful. I've never been, but I'd rather go get developed and go to the NFL and have a great life. Just that's me personally. Yeah. 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 And, and, and moving on, you're, you, you know, I, I don't know how excited you were about this pick, but a couple of shows you've, you've said Oklahoma state looks like the class. Yeah, I know. Big 12, I which, know. Uh, you know, I, I understood the analysis because you got to pick someone, right? But what happened, what happened to them on Saturday and the, the, the continued state of the big 12? <laughs> well, here's the reality. All right. Uh, Texas didn't win that football game. Oklahoma state just gave them the football game. I mean, Sam Ellinger played about as bad as, as he could play. he, I mean, he was one of seven on deep balls, completed 50% of his passes, five of 13, over 10 yards, 44% under pressure. Like every indication of poor quarterback play, he hit the nail on the head. And then you look at how Texas scored, and I I did a breakdown. So so here here was their scoring drives. They had a 15-yard scoring drive for a touchdown after they got a fumble on the 15-yard line going in. They had one drive, a 75-yard drive. That's the only drive in the whole game. Then they had an interception to the eight-yard line, and they scored. They had a fumble to the 20-yard line and scored, a fumble at midfield and scored, and a kickoff return for a touchdown and scored. So yeah. it's like they turned the ball over 100 times and gave it to them right on the doorstep. And and they – I mean, it was just a sloppy game. And then I don't I don't know if you saw it, but Texas scored the, the first overtime series. Oklahoma State gets the ball. They drive down. On third down, it's like third and four, third and five. They run this unbalanced play, and it's like a naked, like what we're talking about, Ryan Day's you know, innovative nakeds. It was beautiful, wide open. And they have like the ineligible receiver running downfield, an offensive lineman running downfield on a route. And you're like, what are they? They got an ineligible man downfield. And you're like, what are, what are you guys doing? Yeah. It was just so bizarre. And then the kid, uh, the DN at, at, or linebacker, whatever he is, outside linebacker at Texas, ended up sacking, sacking the quarterback on fourth down and ended the game. And you're like, it's just, it's just a shame. They just, they shot themselves in the foot over and over again, and now it's over because you know that you know a Big Twelve team isn't getting in now. It's, it seems like this is the mo of becoming the mo of the almost good enough programs, right? Like Oklahoma yeah. State always has talent. They put guys in the NFL at a variety of positions, but they just can't get it done on the field. Why do you think there are so many programs on like that? And what 
does it take to get to the ne- to the next level? I think it's just so hard. They're so hard to get, you know, let's say how many guys play 50 guys on special teams and everything to get 50 guys, all the coaches, all on the same page, all in alignment and all working towards a common goal and doing their job, only worrying about their job. It's just so hard to do that. You have to have a program built with such discipline and such a culture that it's just hard to do. And, and, a lot of guys, Urban used to do it all the time in a staff meeting. He'd be like, all right, I want you, everyone to go around the room. And, you know, I was always the young guy, so I, I didn't really have a say. But there'd be coaches that were 30-year coaches, and he'd be like, write down on a piece of paper every staff you've been on where it was nine strong. Nine coaches that were excellent at their job, did their job, and you didn't have to worry about any position group. Yeah. And, I mean, almost every veteran coach was like, yeah, never in 30 years. <laughs> You're like – you know, I was, I was in urban's program forever. I'm like, shit, I could pick five right now. And I've been in it for seven years, yeah. <laughs> but it's just, it's hard to do. It's hard to get a staff aligned. It's hard to get the players to buy in and then get everybody to work at the necessary level. And certain guys have been able to do it. Dabo, Saban, urban Ryan, and, and you know, you could say Lincoln Riley to an extent, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's really hard to do. And I, I think a lot of guys have never experienced it. They've never even been on a staff that does it. So how could they develop a staff that does it yeah i think that's that's a testament to like when you form a good team you know you don't let them go right i mean that's that's why the same coaches have the same assistant i mean you you were a part of that system zach i mean i don't have to tell you twice but good culture like i I can tell you firsthand just from what what we go through on a day-to-day basis with my work it's just like all I want to do is find the right spots for everybody and just crush it on the culture. And it's like, once that's set, you better believe I'm not breaking that at all. That's staying rock solid forever. But yeah, that's the hard part. It's the best when you, when you get it, you know, I think we had it probably, I don't know, maybe twice at, at Ohio state and probably twice at Florida. But when you get it, it's like it's all you're doing is just trying to push everybody as hard as you can. Like I'm trying to push my players as hard as I can. Urban's pushing me as hard as I can because you know you have it. And it's like, oh, my God, like this is one of those opportunities where the pitcher accidentally threw a change up right down the middle. We have to swing as hard as we can to hit this ball because he, he'll never do it again. You may, you may only get one shot. And it, yeah. it was, it's just so cool when you're in that moment. Cause you like wake up yeah. at four in the morning. You're like, wow, I got to go to work and get, get going because this is, I, I may never have a group like this. And it, it's, it's such a cool experience. And I know, and, and being on this other side of it, like you said, it applies to business too. Like you get that culture yeah. right in a business and all of a sudden you're like, Ooh, Ooh, we might make a lot of money. I got to drive this ship really hard. Yeah. yeah, and not yeah. just business. I mean, like no, it's, it's, it's election day. It's this is coming out Thursday, and in politics as well, a, a great team is everything. You know, from yeah, the campaign oh yeah. manager to what what you put in an office, and yeah, to your point, B in life, it's just like getting people who are like minded with the same values, with the same level of drive, all surrounding mm-hmm. the same vision. Man, it's hard. Do you know? Like, how do you know, Zach? How do you know that it's it's one of those years? Um, that's a great question. I, I don't know. I don't know that, that I could put my finger on it. It's just a few, I think it's just a, um, an attitude about getting better and working. That, that yeah. was when, when I really felt it. Obviously you had to have the talent. If you didn't have the talent, like when I was at, um, Marshall or Temple, both those places, actually, we had a great culture in my room. Um, and we had some talented guys that played in the NFL, but we didn't have the talent across the board. So we couldn't beat Penn state. You know what I mean? So if you have the talent and then all of a sudden you get talented kids that are going to grind and they're going to listen and learn and take coaching and be humble and just try to push forward and make each other better. You know, when you get that culture with talent, it's like, 
who doesn't enjoy showing up to work every day? Because there was years where I showed up to work and I'm like, this is awful. Like I'm going to coach them hard, but this is terrible. And then yeah. there's some years where I was like, I couldn't wait for them to come to meetings. I couldn't wait to go to practice. Like it's just, you get that feeling like this is a special group. And, it, and it, it, se- it seems like one of the things that you have to balance in a situation like this is as the team starts to know how good it is, right? Like when the team with Zeke and Bosa came back the next year, and they knew how good they were. Yeah. It became a lot more challenging, right? Like the confidence element, how do you balance that as a coach? Because you want your guys to stay humble, but you still want them to have that confidence. Because I know when I played sports, when I felt like I was the best player on the court, I played the best. Yeah. When I went in there with a different mentality, I didn't play my best. Right. I, I think I think it's all about leadership. You know, it's, it's all about having... Like you have a group like you're talking about 2015 that is just so talented, so good, so developed already that you need to have the guys that are competent enough that can still push them higher. And if you don't, that's where you start getting fractions, right? You getting getting guys shooting over here, over here because they're not learning, they're not getting better. And yeah. I mean, you see, Michael Thomas was a great example because he he worked so hard in 2015 still because he knew he could still get better. He knew I was going to coach him hard. Like, and, and it wasn't that way at every position group. It wasn't that way in the leadership on offense. And so all of a sudden you get guys that go to practice and they run the same plays. They don't feel like they're getting better and they lose interest. And now it's not a focus, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of great young guys, kind of the segue to our next thing. Uh, we're talking about Tua Tago. I, I really struggle with his name. So his younger brother playing yeah. quarterback at Maryland, who I've been following him since he was in, in high school and since he did all his elite 11 stuff, but a very poised kid, very calm in the pocket, uh, really, really intelligent, obviously has that, that same you know, set of gifts that Tua has. Uh, what, what's your take on him and on Maryland this year? Well, I think it's really cool. Uh, I'll give you a little backstory here. Uh, so, when Jalen Hurts was the quarterback at Alabama, right? They go to play Georgia. He doesn't. He's not getting it done in the first half. Can't throw the ball. They come in at halftime. Don't know what to do. So Mike Loxley looks at Nick Saban and said, "We need to put the kid, the freshman in Tua." And he's like, "Are you crazy? We're undefeated with with Jalen Hurts. We're not putting Tua in the game." And he Loxley said, "Listen, coach, if you want to win the game." Tua needs to be the quarterback in the second half. And he convinced Saban to bench the Heisman whatever and put in Tua Tungavailoa. And then I, I went when I went down to Alabama and they offered me a job, I went down there and I'm sitting with Mike Loxley and Tua like just found out that Loxley got the coordinator job after the national championship. He came running in the restaurant, like gave him the biggest hug. You could tell they were so close. And so when his brother lost the job to Mac Jones, or, or it was evident he was probably going to, it was like, done immediately i'm going to maryland and be with loxley over and the minute it happened i was like watch out now loxley's a smart coach i mean it, he needs some talent but that, it was awesome to watch because the kid That's has awesome. talent he, he might not be mac jones because mac jones might win the heisman but he's also young he might do it in, in a year or two so it, it's it's gonna be cool to watch and uh, and i know he's happy because he's with his guy you know his brother's guy and yeah. and so when you have that relationship with your head coach or your position coach or your coordinator you play a little better yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. And they would then shape the offense around your skill set as opposed to somebody who doesn't know you as well and wants you to fit into their system. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Do you do you, do you think Maryland might step up and be a be a spoiler or contender? Um, I don't know. They, a lot, they got a lot a lot of areas to work on. 
I mean, I think they're improved. They're going to be improved. I mean, the one thing that anyone will tell you about Mike Loxley when he was an assistant, when he was at New Mexico State as the head coach, now that he's at Maryland, he's one of the best recruiters in the country. He was that guy, like, when it, when you're going against – like, when I went to try to recruit Stefan Diggs our first year at Ohio State, it was me, Mike Loxley, and I can't remember the other coaches, and Loxley won, and he was at Maryland. I'm at Ohio State. Like, he just – he has that – ability to recruit and every any, any coach in the country would tell you if you're head-to-head with Loxley on a kid you're you got your hands full I mean it's going to be a battle and he's back at Maryland which is where his roots are they're going to be good in a year two years I don't know when but they're improved this year I don't think they're there yet to be a spoiler but they're they're getting there and he's going to recruit that way and this will probably be the best Maryland we've seen in a long time since like Ralph Friedgen back with Vernon Davis and yeah. whenever the early 2000s. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's exciting to see. What are you, what are you looking forward to this weekend? Oh man, I'm so, I'm so excited to watch Notre Dame Clemson. I don't care if Trevor Lawrence plays because I think no, Notre Dame is going to get exposed. I think Clemson ha- is, is going to out athlete Notre Dame at every position. The only thing that it's going to be cool to watch is Notre Dame has probably the best offensive line in the country. You could, you can make an argument for Ohio State or Notre Dame, but it's one A, one B. And so I'm excited to see how, how Clemson handles that, that front. Their, how, how's Clemson's D-line? How is their their blitz patterns against that offensive line? So it's going to be awesome. We're going to learn a lot. I think Clemson wins the game, but um, I, I'm excited to watch that one. And Florida-Georgia. Georgia's yeah. terrible on offense. Their quarterback is a high school player. He doesn't belong yeah. in the SEC. He damn sure doesn't belong on a top-five team. And so I think Florida's going to win that one. But it's going to be uh, – it's going to be fun to watch because Florida has an average defense, a pretty good offense. Georgia has a great defense, an awful offense. And it's going to be fun to watch how that, those two matchups kind of play out. Do you think Kyle Trask is a, is a next level player? I think he's, I think he's good. I think he's a really good college player. He, yeah, he's making some throws. I don't think he's like uh, Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, Mac Jones. I don't think he's that level, but he's in that next tier, you know, with the Spencer Rattlers and the other, you know, some of those guys that aren't quite that top tier. And he, and he could become a, a really good player, but I don't think he's going to be an NFL star, no. Okay. Well, I don't know if there's anything else you got you want to ask, Partha. Yeah. So um, I've heard I've heard about something new that you've got going on, Zach. It's a uh, menace to picks. You want to give oh, me you're some gambling? Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it's funny how it happened. I so I have these guys that, that have worked for me, uh, just writing for content for the the website, and and a couple of them are big into gambling. That like they're handicappers, and they wanted to start a handicapping part of the company. And so they, I told them, I was like, I'm not putting my name on. Like you guys, no one knows who you are. Like if I put my name <laughs> on it, we suck. Everyone's gonna be like, this guy's an idiot. Like so, I told them they had to do it for free for a month, and if they were over sixty percent, like wins, then we could actually make it something like a subscription model or whatever and they were 64 percent after a month and i was like all right let's do it and i'm telling you what they're ridiculous like the last i put out a graphic today the last seven days if you if you seven days ago subscribed took a thousand dollars and all you did was pick exactly what they picked this morning you'd have woke up with thirty one hundred dollars in seven days like they're out and I'm sure, don't get me wrong, it's going to come back down a little bit, but they're outpacing anyone in gambling. So I'm fired up about it. There's a lot of people making money. I'm afraid Vegas is going to call me and like take me out, though. <laughs> <laughs> when you first started this, I, 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 did you see the movie Two for the Money yet? Oh, yeah. No, I still haven't seen it. I need yeah, to watch it. Out. They'll, they'll, get you, they'll get you juiced up, man. But I do think, obviously, you know your football. Your guys know their football. 
you're looking for sports picks, you you want to win, then definitely check out Menace to Picks. How do how do people subscribe? Tell us about that. How do they how do they get involved? So I mean, the easiest way to get all the info is on Twitter at Menace to Picks. I mean, we have a Patreon for it, which is patreon.com forward slash Menace to Picks. But you know, like anything else, people will probably want to just check it out from a distance at first. But the one thing I know is, and I didn't know this beforehand, but there's these handicappers that hit at 55, 57%, and they're charging 25 bucks a day for picks. Wow. It's just, which I was like, that's absurd. So I was like, we'll do 25 bucks a month. How about 82 cents a day? Like that's way more feasible for most people. Yeah. And so it's affordable. And, and what I tell people when they message me, I'm like, just give it a try. Spend 25 bucks. See if you win money. If you don't cancel. Yeah, that's definitely worth a shot. Yeah. So if you're into into any of the picks and sports betting, make sure you look up Menace to Picks. Uh, that's all I got today for our college football sprint with Zach Smith, Coach Zach Smith on Twitter. Uh, we are going to move to our election day special of news and notes. A little bit of reaction from me and V. Uh, so awesome. Thank you so much, Zach. And we will talk to you next time. Yeah, man. I appreciate you guys having me on as always. Love the Pilot Boys podcast? Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as $1. We have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys podcast. Show us some love today. Hey guys, this is Partha. You might know me as a pilot boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. Lasso is a high performance lifestyle brand that makes a Lasso sock 2.0, the most functional sock ever to help you stay moving on any adventure you choose. Lasso uses patented compression technology with scientifically proven ankle stability to support key ligaments and tendons as well as moisture wicking materials and built in strike padding. So every single step is stable, soft, and cool. Lasso socks are also used to treat foot and ankle conditions like plantar fasciitis, Achilles pain, ankle soreness, circulation issues, and more. Check them out at lassogear.com or at lassogear on social media. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Ondo Media here in Columbus has been working with us to keep the Pilot Boys in production during the pandemic as well as getting our YouTube videos going. It's all about telling your story to your audience, so give John at Ondo Media a shout. You can find all of their media consulting at ondomedia.com. That's all we have for today's show. Thank you to Zach Smith for stopping by. If you're a fan of the podcast, please support us on Patreon and follow us on social media at Pilot Boys Pod on Twitter and at Pilot Boys Podcast on Instagram. And always remember, be you. You is fly. Pilot Boys out. Pilot Boys, we get on up.